The podcast you're about to hear is dedicated to Jack King. Jack is Morgan's grandfather who passed away last Saturday. And for the large portion of the week, we've been at either a funeral or shitting Shiva for his passing. So that's why there was no podcast on Tuesday, but that's why there's a podcast today. And I just want to dedicate this podcast to his memory because, well, him and I didn't talk a lot of sports. We did talk a little bit. And in getting to have conversations with Morgan's family members, he was a big sports guy. Favorite team was probably the Yankees. Huge Joe DiMaggio fan. He's got a New York Giants garbage can in his office upstairs in his house, and uh, I, I only knew him for a short time, but the interactions that I had with him and just the way that his presence lit up the room that whenever Morgan and him were in a room is something that I'll never forget, and in the life that he did live, I mean, it, it's as good of a life as you could possibly have, you know, self-made man. U.S. Army veteran who served in the Army during uh, the Korean War. Huge family man. Family meant everything to Jack. That's the one thing that I knew from the minute I met him, that there was nothing more important in his life than his family. And I just want to, again, dedicate this podcast to the life of Jack Arthur King, who was 91 years old. You were a living husband, father, and grandfather, and you will be missed. You're listening to the Grind Hours Podcast. At the wall! See ya! See ya! Hello and welcome to the Grind Hours Podcast for Friday, May 19th, 2023. Recording this just after 2 o'clock Eastern Time on Long Island. And while it's been a heavy week family-wise... It's been an interesting week sports-wise, and doing Dan's show, Dan Grasha's show on 98.7 ESPN for the past three days, I've kind of, it, I'm not going to say I'm ripping off Dan's show, that it, but the discussions that he has had on his show and that we've had in the breaks and all of the, the topics that the callers have brought up. So we're going to start with Dan's Mets and Morgan's Mets, and I have a lot of other Met fans in my life. It's been an interesting season, to say the least. Uh, not a season that has brought many highlights until Wednesday night when the Mets had their best one of the year, came back three different times with Alonzo ultimately hitting the walk-off home run in the bottom of the 10th. But I don't want to talk about Alonzo yet. I want to talk about the three kids, Vientos, Beatty, and Alvarez, and how what they can bring to the offense. And with Alvarez and Vientos' power, Beatty's more of an average hitter. He's, I'm not going to say he's McNeil, but he's more of that McNeil type where he will get on base, he'll be a table setter. And ultimately, I think just based on the way that the Mets, you know, put their lineup together, their lineup construction... I could see Beatty more as a two or three hitter just to, you know, flip off of Nemo and the righty lefty righty and, and be that guy in front of Alonzo that will get on base and allow Alonzo to drive him in. But they should play every day. And I know Vientos and Beatty play the same position. Vientos can play some first base. He can DH. I would especially now with how Alonzo has been sick the past couple of days and apparently sick as a dog the night that he hit the walk-off home run. Give Pete, you know, half the day off. Let him DH. Let Vientos DH. Have Beatty as the DH. Vogelbach and Tommy Pham, as much as I like both of those players on paper, they haven't been as advertised so far in their Mets tenure. And with Vogelbach, it's been even more so than Fam. Fam just got here. Vogelbach's been here for about a year, and 
he hasn't had a signature moment, and for the most part, he has just been an average to a to a below average. And you know, when he's cold, and I mean, this can go for a lot of players, but well below average. And you haven't got the production that you thought you were getting. The Mets thought they were getting Milwaukee Vogelbach, which is who Pittsburgh thought they were getting when they signed Vogelbach to a free agent deal a couple of years ago. That hasn't come to fruition, and I'm not saying it can't, but with the way that Beatty has been playing, he sh- he's clearly got the third base job, and if Vientos continues to rake how he did in AAA and how he did in his first game a couple of nights ago, Vientos is going to have to play every day. And Alvarez right now is your everyday catcher with the injuries to Nervaez and to Nito. So Alvarez being your everyday catcher, he's going to be in the lineup every day. If he can provide some pop out of the nine hole, which is pretty much where Buck has put him since he's come up to be the major league catcher. I like the balance that these three guys at different points in the lineup can bring. And again, they need to play every day because they bring an energy and a hunger that is not necessarily there every single night with a Lindor, with a Marte, even with a Nimmo. So adding that energy into the clubhouse, plus the fans always love homegrown players. So if Vientos, Alvarez, and Beatty can actually become something you're going to see their jerseys just as much as you see Alonzo's jersey because they're all homegrown guys. And I think it will also reinvigorate the Lindors, the Martes, the Escobars to play like they're young again. And there's something to that that I think every team needs. Some teams only have one rookie. Some teams have half their teams as rookies, and they, and they do that, that balance. But this is a championship-level team, and I think that they can get to the to that point. Listen, it's going to be a tough road to climb with how good the Braves are, but Verlander, Scherzer, and Sanga as your top three, there's not many top threes that are like that in baseball. And I know Scherzer and Verlander haven't been their Hall of Fame selves thus far in 2023, but Verlander is making his fourth start of the year on Sunday Night Baseball on Sunday. Scherzer, because of the 10-game suspension, I think is thrown off of his you know, schedule and routine. I, I, would, I, I know Scherzer's br- broken down the past couple of years, late in the year, so maybe this is good for him. I will aid on the side of Scherzer's going to be okay. Verlander's going to be okay. And it's not just because of what they've done in the past and, and the equity that they've built up as aces of staffs. I just think, you know, pit, pitchers like them find it. You know, C.C. Sabathia with the Yankees went through this in like 2012, 2013, where he didn't have his A fastball anymore. He he couldn't get guys out with that slider anymore. So he had he had to readjust and become a new pitcher. And I think that's what you're seeing with Scherzer and to a lesser extent Verlander. Verlander again. It's he's in a even though we're in the middle of May, he's at the very end of April in terms of where he is in his calendar because of his injury and, and getting back from that. So with Scherzer I think just because he's a mad scientist and because he can just study himself and and get right, I think he's going to find out a way through conversations with the other guys on the staff and and with the pitching coaches in Queens to figure it out and find a way to be effective. Now, I don't think he can be your ace of your staff anymore. I, I don't. I think Verlander has to be that for the Mets to go anywhere. But... If Sanga can get can give you seventy percent of the performance that he that he gave the Mets against the Rays, he is a high quality number two, and Scherzer can be that number three. And I mean Scherzer is definitely overqualified to be a number three, but I think that can work for the Mets, and that could be a recipe for success. And they they need it because if they don't, it's going to be. How, this 
And what I mean by this is the start of the season all the way through. But again, I'm going to bet on Scherzer and Verlander figuring it out. I'm going to bet on Senga being not one of the best pitchers in baseball, but a pretty damn good one. And I think the Mets will be fine. I do. And I'm not just overreacting or underreacting because of the time of the calendar. This talent that they have on the roster is still good enough to compete for that division. I'm not saying win the division, but compete for the division and make it a race. And history is on the side of the Mets because something in recent history here, there's always something about an an East team that's kind of stumbled out of the gates that they'll find it and make a run for the World Series. Not just the division or making the playoffs, but the World Series. It happened with the 2019 Nationals. It happened to a lesser extent with the Braves a couple of years ago when Acuna blew out his Achilles running to first base just before the All-Star break and everybody thought they were dead to rights. And it happened last year with the Philadelphia Phillies. I'm not saying... And, and with all three of those ball clubs, something drastic changed. I'm not saying that. I mean, the Nationals retooled and, and kind of built around veterans at the trade deadline. With the Braves, it was obviously the Acuna injury. And with the Phillies last year, it was firing Joe Girardi. So I'm not saying something drastic has to change. Maybe that drastic change is bringing up these three rookies and allowing them to play every day and find their footing and be the energy that this team desperately needs, maybe that's the change. But writing off the Mets right now with the divisional history, with how wide open that division is, with how wide open the NL as an entire league is, because, I mean, looking outside of the NL East, you would say you would trust the Dodgers. You would say you would almost trust the Brewers. But after that, Padres are in the same boat as the Mets. The Pirates were an incredible story early. Can they sustain that? Same with the Diamondbacks. The Marlins are still trying to figure it out. They're about a year, year and a half away, maybe two years away. Phillies haven't really gotten going, even though they have a lot of talent and went to the World Series last year. They seem to have a little bit of World Series hangover, even though they lost the World Series. So for the Mets, it's sort of, you know, get your stuff together right now and go, because I think they can still make a run at this division. And listen, if they got on a hot streak and Atlanta's just kind of there, they could make this a divisional race. And you know what happens when going down to the dog days of summer and into September what happens if it's a three or four game race? It gets tight it, it, and it makes for good baseball. And I think that's what's going to ultimately end up happening. And another thing to note here, Gary Sanchez just got called up last night. He will be in, I'm not sure if he'll be in the lineup tonight against the Guardians, but he will be in the clubhouse and he will be on a major league roster again for a second ch- or for a third chance, for his third chance in the major leagues. He absolutely destroyed minor league pitching in Syracuse. So maybe he can find it here and he can also be part of the light that gets the Mets out of a a really rough start. I don't know. You know, the trend has always been former Yankee players playing for the Mets hasn't been great, but maybe Sanchez can buck that trend. No pun intended. After the break, we will shift gears to basketball and to another beacon of hope in New York City. Back after this. SeatGeek is the number one ticket app for buying and selling tickets. Sports fans, music fans, comedy fans, theater fans, fans of tickets. Use my code GRINDHOUR to get into the building to get yourself a seat. Again, that's code GRINDHOUR at checkout. For $20 off your first purchase at SeatGeek.com or the SeatGeek app. One more time, code GRINDHOUR. That's G-R-I-N-D-H-O-U-R at checkout. 
Feed Hudson Valley is a regional food rescue and harvesting network in the Hudson Valley operating through Dutchess, Orange, Ulster, Columbia, Green, Putnam, and Sullivan counties. It links donors of prepared but unserved food and fresh produce with nonprofits and food assistant programs through an app assisted network of food donors, volunteers, and feeding agencies. Feed Hudson Valley facilitates the harvesting, processing, and distribution of locally grown or produced agricultural products, self-stable food donations, and prepared nutritious foods. The app used is called Chowmatch, and it is easy for volunteers to download and use. Among the donors are restaurants, farms, food makers, stores, hospitals, and universities. The food assistant programs include food pantries, soup kitchens, and shelters. Volunteers are matched through the Chowmatch app when a donation is available. They can indicate that they are available to make a run and then pick it up for a donor and deliver it to the agency. The Feed Hudson Valley Network currently includes over 300 volunteers, 130 donors, and 95 receiving agencies. Last year on average, Feed Hudson Valley re rescued and redirected over 12,000 pounds of food each month. Feed Hudson Valley could use more donors and volunteers. To learn more and sign up, visit feedhv.org. Again, that's feedhv.org. One more time, spelled out, F-E-E-D-H-V.org. Now back to the podcast. All right, coming back here, switching to the Knicks. And so far in the very short offseason that the Knicks have had thus far. The conversation around the Knicks is something has to change. Whether that's firing Tom Thibodeau, getting rid of Julius Randle, somehow finding a disgruntled superstar who we don't know who's disgruntled yet to play alongside Jalen Brunson, but something's got to give because being where they are right now isn't good enough in a large majority of the eyes of Knicks fans. And as a non-biased bystander, I want to throw cold water on you. So grab a towel. It's okay. Where you are is just fine for the development of this team. And I'm not saying don't strive for greatness. Don't try to make that next step if it becomes possible and there there is a disgruntled superstar that you think can become the face in New York because if you get a guy like a Joel Embiid like a Giannis Antetokounmpo like you know what I'm just gonna stick with those two because I think those two are the only two right now feasibly that can become disgruntled that would the Knicks would pounce on and they would instantly become the face of New York, no disrespect to Jalen Brunson because, you know, Jalen Brunson is not an MVP and he's not a world champion like Giannis is. So Brunson would have to take the back seat to one of them. And just based off of his personality, a year in New York, I don't think that that's a tall task or something that he would be opposed to because he just seems like a guy that just wants to play ball and will do whatever it takes to get better. And, I mean, he is the definition of what this town loves in a basketball player. And he will be a great number two to one of those two guys if, again, they become disgruntled. Or maybe Luka and Dallas. Who knows? We have no idea who can get angry with their situation and force a trade on June 30th. Because ultimately, that's going. To, somebody will become disgruntled. Somebody will not like the way the the direction that the the team is going that they're currently on and want out. It's just the way of the NBA. So if you're a Knicks fan, wait for that possibility. And again, if that player, whoever it is, fits the system and fits the identity of the Knicks, I think you pounce on that when it becomes available. If not, if by some weird topsy-turvy chance that this year is an anomaly in that case, then 
I think you pivot to this, and that is retool around shooters. Keep the core, keep majority of the people that you have on the roster on the roster. Evan Fournier, not an answer. He will be off this team. He's already said in, in an article, I believe with The Athletic, that he will be traded at some point in the offseason. Now, I think a future first-round pick is going to have to be attached to Fournier because I don't know who in their right mind right now is searching the Knicks roster and calling up Leon Rose and saying, he's our guy. He's the missing piece. We need an Evan Fournier. We are an Evan Fournier away from becoming a title contender. I don't think there's a team in the league that's saying that. I think Derrick Rose will sort of transition onto the Knicks coaching staff and retire as a player, stick around New York, because I think he is a valuable voice in that locker room. And a lot of guys confide in him for different reasons to betterment to to have a betterment of their careers. And, you know, I think Quickly is a guy like that. I think Grimes is a guy like that. I think in a large portion, Jalen Brunson is a guy like that. So Tibbs loves him. He's not going to, you know, I don't think Tom Thibodeau is going to allow Rose to leave New York in an unceremonious way. And, I mean, if you walk into MSG, at some point in the game, there will be a Derrick Rose chant. So I think that is a feasible thing to do is just stick with this core retool around shooting and I have six names that the Knicks could bring in now they're not superstars they're not stars they're not even a lot of them all stars they're just good rotational pieces that can shoot the basketball and allow spacing so that Julius Randle isn't doing a Randle handle into a turnover into a double team and Jalen Brunson doesn't have to be it so I would pick one of these six guys, or maybe more than one. First guy that comes to mind, who's the free agent this year, is Gary Trent Jr. He's a 3 and D guy. He is a guard that they can offset Josh Hart with and pair with Jalen Brunson at times that I think will definitely, definitely benefit the team. Second guy, and it kills me to say this because I want him back in Brooklyn, but it is Brooke Lopez. I think he can provide some defense from the center position, he can also sit in the corner and make some corner threes, and you can't sag into the paint when Randall or Brunson is driving because if they find Lopez in the corner, he's going to knock it down. Next guy, sort of the same ilk as Emmanuel Quickly, and that's Jordan Clarkson, who's more three than D, but he's one of six man of the year. He can add a little bit of grittiness and toughness that I think the Knicks are lacking a little bit they're not lacking it by much but that there is a sort of swagger that Clarkson brings that I think will fit well in the role that he he can provide for the Knicks next guy is a Nick is a guy that was a Nick in the past that I think they could potentially bring back on a short-term deal and that's Alec Burks listen Nick fans don't turn the podcast off I know he was an eh Nick but you need a guy like Burks to just provide a little bit of spacing. You do. And if you don't, you don't know the modern NBA. And I know he's got a lot to improve on in his game. And he, you know, he's not going to because he's a seasoned veteran. And he's just, he is who he is. But I think he could be a good rotational piece to, again, provide shooting that you desperately, desperately need. And I know a lot of Nick fans are saying, well, that's just Evan Fournier 2.0, but maybe not. Maybe not. Another guy coming off of an injury, you might not want to go this route, but potentially on just a upside prove-it deal is Joe Ingles. Ingles, I don't think, is going to be the same player defensively that he was in Utah before the injury, but I think he can, he's a, shot creator he can shoot the three really really well he's a veteran who has been in a lot of postseasons and he's not going to shy away from the moment he can you know be a shoulder for all these young Knicks that were just getting their first taste of the postseason this season 
I don't know if he can be, you know, the difference maker. But again, I would try it. And if it doesn't work out, you know, it's a prove-it deal. So it's not going to cost the Knicks that much. And the, and the final guy is a guy that I just, for no apparent reason, love. And that's Rudy Gay. I think Rudy Gay's got a little bit left in the tank. I think he is the perfect guy for New York. I think he can be a really underrated 3 and D guy for a lot of contenders this year. So I would go that route. The other thing that I think you have to explore is R.J. Barrett's market. And I'm not saying just immediately give up on R.J., but listen... Just because he had a couple of good games in the postseason doesn't mean he had a good season. I, for one, got on RJ a lot of for a large portion of this season. I didn't think he had a good year at all. I think for a lot of the season, he was borderline unplayable. Going into the playoffs, that was the vibe around the team is that you couldn't count on RJ and he was a, you know a net zero, was not going to give you anything. So the run that he went on in the postseason was extremely surprising to me. I think that's still in him. I think he can be a 20-point-a-game scorer in the NBA. I do. I think he's got that in him. I, But I don't know if that's here. I think he is a change-of-scenery guy. I think he can definitely be a difference-maker in the league. I just don't know if it's in New York. And all the R.J. Barrett fans and you know, screaming at me to apologize to RJ. I'm not going to do that because, again, I believe in his talent and I believe it's there. But, again, I don't think it's in New York. And I think he does have value around the league because I think a couple of the fringe playoff teams are looking at RJ and going, if we can get him in the building and we can get him with our offensive staff, we can get the best out of RJ. And I think you can get a, a draft pick or two. Or you know, a mid-draft pick, mid-round, first-round draft pick, and a decent role player for RJ. And I think you would need to explore that at this point in time. And if a disgruntled superstar does become available, I think you have to pick between one of the two, Emmanuel Quickly or Quentin Grimes. I would pick Emmanuel Quickly. Excuse me. I think Quickly was not, you know, to me, he was the sixth man of the year. He, at times, took over games when he was starting, so he's a star, starter caliber player in this league. I really like what he can bring off the bench. I think he's a tremendous change of pace from what Brunson is, and I would aid on the side of quickly, even though Grimes, as a 3 and D guy, has potential bigger upside than quick. So there it is, Nick fans. Take it or leave it. That's what I think you should do this this offseason. If I had to bet, I would bet on the side of you're going to retool with shooters and keep the core around, keep Julius Randle, keep Tibbs, and that's going to make a lot of Nick fans angry. But again, you wouldn't be in the second round of the playoffs if it wasn't for Randle. And this team is not that far off as currently constructed. I don't think if you retool with shooters, you're a finals contender. I think you could potentially get to the Eastern Conference Finals next year. I think you could be a top four seed in the East next year if that happens. If Brunson takes that next step, actually gets the recognition that he deserves, becomes an all-star, is an all-NBA type of guy that he, like he was this year. Randall stays pat and gives you that 25-13 and, and and is just that type of dude that will be maddening, but also win you a lot of games and be there night in and night out. So, and then with this year, building on what you did this past season, next year, the following summer is the summer for the superstar. That's when a lot of guys become free. And guys will look at the trajectory of the Knicks and look on these past two years and say, I want to come to New York and be that difference maker, be that guy that takes them over the top and wins them a title. So don't sell the farm for a guy like Bradley Beal or Carl Anthony Towns. That's not going to help you 
along the trajectory of becoming what you want. I know it's painful to just sit idle for for a year or or think you're going to sit idle for a year, but before you can have a celebration, a lot of the times pain comes before that joy. So be patient. Exhale. Take another big deep breath in and realize where the Knicks are as a franchise because it is a lot closer to becoming a title contender than a cellar dweller. After the break, we will talk about the team still alive in the NBA playoffs and what I learned from just three games of Conference Finals basketball. Back right after this. Do you miss classic pop punk? How about emo? Were you rocking some neon cartoon monster merch back in the high school days? Where did all the good times go? Well, worry no more, because I have the fix for your problems. A brand new band! We are the Bad Ideas, and if you listen to the Grind Hours podcast, you've already heard our song Firecracker many a time. The Bad Ideas EP is currently available on all streaming platforms. Just look for the cover art of a woman more beautiful than I could ever hope to be. Five songs of retro-modern pop-punk bliss for your listening pleasure. Delicious. And keep those red ties and eyeliner dusted off, because there goes the neighborhood. Our debut album is coming soon. It's practically here. Subscribe on YouTube and listen on any streaming service you wish. The Bad Ideas, your new favorite pop-punk band. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. podcast here on the four teams still left standing in the NBA playoffs starting in the west because game two was last night and it's still kind of fresh in my mind I want to talk about a couple of things a couple of stats that I found and a couple of comments from the Denver Nuggets head coach Michael Malone which he's 100% right about one is the narrative that a large portion of the national media pushed after game one with the Lakers being okay and not focusing on the Nuggets being up 1-0. It was more of, well, the Lakers are going to be fine. They sort of figured stuff out at the end of game one, and they're primed for a game two victory. And I, I fully admit that I was in that camp. I really thought the Lakers... We're going to win last night. So much so that I placed a couple of bets on the Lakers last night. And if you follow me on Twitter, you know that I lost every single bet that I tried to make last night. The big parlay, just betting on the Lakers straight up, and all of the bets that I tried to, to hedge at halftime and into the third quarter, I, I lost every, I placed like six bets last night. Not big money, but I lost every single one of them, and it sucks, but it speaks to the sleeping giant-esque nature of this Nuggets team, and they are a prime, nobody believes in us team, even though they're the best team in the West, even though they were the number one seed, even though they have Jokic, who's won the MVP two out of the past three years, and a lot of people are rethinking their vote with Jokic based on the way he's played in the postseason, and that happens all the time. It happened all the time with LeBron, where we wouldn't give LeBron the MVP during the regular season, and then come postseason, LeBron would turn it into another gear, 
and make us all feel stupid for not giving him the MVP, even though during the regular season, he didn't deserve it. Now, I'm not saying Jokic didn't deserve the MVP this year. He made a tremendous case for the MVP for a large majority of the season, but him not caring about the award, him kind of slacking off in the last two weeks and allowing Jokic, or allowing Embiid, excuse me, to really put a stranglehold on the MVP conversation and put a couple of tremendous performances together at the end of the year to have it fresh in the voters' minds, I think ultimately put Embiid over the top for the MVP. I also think a lot of people were scared off at the notion of Jokic winning three consecutive MVPs and the conversation that that puts him in. I I struggled with it. I think the MVP is fine, even though I think Jokic is the best player in the, in the NBA right now. I do. He is tremendous. He had a yet another triple-double last night in Game 2. They're up 2-0. A stat that I stumbled upon, and I think a lot of, you know, of the stats that are thrown out this time of year are just nothing stats and made up and meaningless. But this, I think, is a little significant because Denver has home court advantage in this series. The last 23 home games in which Nikola Jokic played in that game, the Denver Nuggets are 23-0. They have not lost in the last 23 times that Jokic has stepped on the ball arena floor. That's something because that's going to be needed in Game 5 and Game 7 if it ultimately comes down to it. And that's not nothing. But Jokic, I think, is the X Factor completely in this series because he's in that Giannis Embiid conversation where Giannis was a couple of years ago before he won the ring against the Suns, where Embiid is, where Chris Paul has been a lot in his career, where Devin Booker is starting to enter that conversation of tremendous player, but a guy who, when it comes down to the postseason, ultimately falls short. And Jokic, so far in his career, has been the guy that has gotten his team to the postseason, has had a tremendous regular season, has two MVPs on his shelf, but when it comes to the postseason, he just kind of shrinks in terms of his team's success. Jokic in the postseason has pretty much, you know, excluding a game here and a game there, been the exact same player that he is in the regular season, but the people around him have shrunk, and that has made Jokic not be able to sit on the same pedestal that he probably should be on, which is best player in the NBA, superstar, a guy who is unequivocally one of the best talents we've ever seen in basketball, not just recent history, but maybe ever, because the stuff that he does, not only does it look awkward, but it works, and it works every single night, and he doesn't care whether you like it or not. He's just going to give you the business. He can hoop, and a lot of people, because where he plays, have not paid attention to Jokic, and are seeing him for the first time on a national scale, uh, national stage, excuse me, and are revisiting his postseason exits, and are seeing a guy that is fed up with that narrative, and really taking it to the Lakers and LeBron and all the doubters. And I think if he can continued the success that he's had so far in these playoffs and so far in this series, he's going to change a lot of people's minds whether he's walking away with the Larry O'Brien trophy in a couple of weeks or not. I think getting him to the finals and being the best player on a finals team that has gotten to the finals, I think that the Nuggets can win the whole thing, but just getting to the finals, that first step of being one of the best two teams in the league is a giant step for Jokic and his career and how he is viewed. But I also think it's plausible. Originally, 
I had Lakers in seven. I think I'm going to change that to Nuggets in seven. I think this series does go the distance. I think LeBron in game three has an all-time game. I think Anthony Davis, odd game Davis, shows up again and has a odd game Davis-like performance and you know throws in 30 points, grabs 15 to 20 rebounds, plays excellent defense. But I think LeBron is going to go absolutely nuclear in game three. Have an all-time performance. I think he's sort of taken these two games and put it in his genius basketball IQ brain and figured out the Nuggets, even though LeBron has missed 19 consecutive three-point attempts. He's too great to go down in a whimper like this in the Western Conference Finals. He's going to battle back. He's going to be the difference maker. I guarantee LeBron has two games this series where the Nuggets can just do nothing about it. He takes over and the Lakers win. I think that's game three. I don't think this series is over yet. However, I do like the narrative of that Michael Malone said, you know, no one believes in this team. No one knows who we are. No one takes us seriously, and they should. And one of the guys that also fits that bill, along with Jokic, is Jamal Murray. And Jamal Murray, to me, is in the same conversation as Jalen Brunson is for the Knicks, where I don't think he's a superstar, but he's definitely not a star. He's in that weird in-between phase where... He definitely could be a superstar, but can you just prove it to me time after time? And Brunson has started that phase where he's proved it once. Can you prove it again? And I think Murray's in that same conversation where he's proved it, he's proven it to you once. He proved it, he proved it to you in the bubble. But but can he and all the you know Jalen Brunson fanboys out there saying, well, he did this in Dallas last year. He did, but Luka was the guy. And if you're going to look at that run of the Western Conference Finals, you're going to remember what Luka did. And the Jalen Brunson awesome performances in the Utah series and in the Phoenix series are kind of going to go unnoticed because, again, Luka is the star, and that's what you're going to remember from that series, not the the two really good Jalen Brunson performances. So Brunson this year... Proved it. Murray last year in the bubble, or la- two, three years ago in the bubble, excuse me, proved it. He's proving it again. I don't know if I can put him right now in the class of superstar. And I'm not discrediting what Jamal Murray is as a player. He is tremendous and must see TV and one of the best guards in the NBA. But That superstar status, it's thrown around a lot. I just don't think he's there yet because there's certain baggage that comes with that superstar status. And there's certain, he's just not on that level yet. And that's fine. He's still a young player. He still has a lot to prove. He still has a lot to go. And I think where his ceiling is, I don't think this is who Jamal Murray is going to be for the next five years. I don't. I really think He's going to go to that next level, and it's going to be fantastic. But I don't think it's yet. And fine. Just to put a bow on this series, my original prediction was Lakers in seven. I'm officially changing it after game two to Nuggets in seven. Moving out east, game two is tonight. Celtics, Heat couple of things from game one, and I don't think it's an overreaction because I think both talking points for what I'm about to say have been the trend this season and in years past. First thing is, I don't think Joe Mazzulla is fit to be a head coach in this league, at least right now. And with where the Celtics are, I don't think they can afford to allow Joe Mazzulla to have those growing pains as a basketball coach because their ceiling, their championship window is drastically closing and the shortcomings of Joe Mazzulla 
can ultimately be the reason that if Jason Tatum never wins an, an NBA title, you're going to look back at Joe Mazzulla as one of those reasons. He just doesn't have it. A lot of people look at players and say, yeah, they don't have the quote-unquote it factor. I don't think Joe Mazzulla has that as a basketball coach. I don't think he's good. I don't think he has a good grasp on game management, on rotations, on speaking to the media. I just, he is very, very evergreen with this. And I think he could be a fine assistant somewhere, but as a head man on one of the top teams in the game, he's not the answer. And I don't know who that guy is, but it's not Missoula. That's clear. Eric Spolstra should be thanking his lucky stars that the Celtics won game seven and he has this cakewalk in terms of out-coaching someone. Now, I think the Celtics are tremendously talented and I think they are more talented than the Heat are. But I think Spolstra ultimately makes up for that lack of talent with how good of a head coach he is. And I think that will ultimately be the difference maker in this series. I have the Heat in six. I had the Heat in six before the series started. Just after game one, I think that's that point is validated. And one quick thing that I want to bring up that I think is a just classic sports radio discussion. And that is, I think this iteration of the Heat is the late or early 2010s version of the San Antonio Spurs. I think the Heat are now the Spurs. I know they don't have the titles to back that up, but they went to the finals in the bubble. They went to the conference finals last year and were just mere centimeters away from making the finals again. Butler, and I've said this before on this podcast, and I'm not alone in this thinking, when he released that shot, I thought it was good. And it was almost good. So I don't think this Heat team is scared at all of the Celtics. I think they view them as better than the Celtics, even though, again, just talent-wise, the Celtics are way more talented than the Heat are. And I think the Heat are going to go back to the finals this year and whoever they play, give them the business and make that series go the distance because of how good Jimmy Butler and that will that he instills in not only the team, but the quote-unquote Heat culture. I don't think what the Heat are doing right now should be discounted. Again, they've either made the finals or went to the conference finals three out of the last four years. And that matters. They're a really good team. Even though they made the A-seed and just sort of slept walk through majority, if not all of the regular season, they turn it on and they are serious, serious contenders they are, to me, the best team in the East right now, regardless of who's on where. And I really, really like what's going on in Miami. I, they are definite title contenders. I can't tell you what's going to push them over the edge to make them hoist the trophy at the end of it. But I am, as much as it pains me, I'm a fan of what they're doing. And I know John, who's been on this podcast before, huge Heat fan. He's loving this right now. And you can't tell him nothing about anything when it comes to the Heat. And Jimmy Butler, I think, is slowly becoming his second favorite Heat player of all time behind Dwayne Wade. I, and part of this is the Spolstra effect as well. Spo has been overlooked because of when he burst onto the scene, the championship teams he had with the Heatles and LeBron, Wade, and Bosh, and a lot of people discounted his coaching prowess because of those three guys. 
But if you look at his record without the big three in Miami, it is just as good as any other coach in the league other than, you know, Pop. I think Pop still is the best coach in the NBA, but Spolstra is that rung halfway below him, like that in-between step on the ladder, you know, not the top of the ladder, but just right there. And I think it should be appreciated more. It's a lot like what's going on in Denver. It's not appreciated. It's not talked about because Boston is Boston, because Milwaukee's Milwaukee and Giannis is Giannis. And what's going on in Philly with Embiid and, you know, the Ben Simmons before Harden and Harden now and what's going to happen with Philly in the next iteration with the next coach and how the the quote-unquote process is going to continue to process. Miami is a sleeping giant in the East, just like the Nuggets are, and their greatness is also being discounted just like San Antonio, even though Miami is a bigger market than San Antonio, even though Pat Riley, I would argue, is just as big of a figure in basketball as Popovich, even though, like I just said, Spolstra is barely the second best coach in all of basketball. It doesn't get talked about. And again, the reason why I uh, you know, took the last part of this podcast to talk about it is because this greatness will be forgotten if it's not brought up. It will be an SB Nation, now secret-based video, three years from now. How good this run is. You know, the heat run from 2019 to 2023 revisited. That sort of thing. And I just want to shed a little light on that. However, I think that's a good place to end on this side of the coin. That's fake Jay Leo on Twitter, jdadsports.blogspot.com, and of course, this podcast. If you've reached this point, please like, subscribe, share this podcast to anybody who you seem fit. If you're new to the show, please download the show. It means more to the show than you know. I know I said what I said about the blog. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. A lot of Yankees discussions that I want to have through writing with the way that this season has gone, with what happened in Toronto, with where the Yankees are in terms of their season. And I think just now, like the Mets are hitting their stride a month and a half into the season. And I was a little bit premature on my declarations. If you follow me on Twitter about this team, again, not the fake J. Leo on Twitter, but I think these are healthy discussions and I will, I'm trying, trying to have uh, a guest booked for next week's pod or in the next few weeks to discuss Yanks. So look out for that. I hope you're having a great weekend. Get out, go for a walk, listen to this podcast while on that walk. <laughs> listen to it again or listen to the catalog. I hope your family's happy and healthy and you're doing well. And until next time, it's closing time. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Peace.